0: Hello everyone, this is Karin Takar and welcome to the Zenergy Podcast. Over the past decade, India has done an impressive job of integrating renewable energy into its energy mix. For this Fulbright Podcast series, I sought to investigate the enabling factors and potential of India's global leadership in renewable energy with the focus on solar. This Fulbright series is broken down into four seasons. In this season, through conversations with 10 leading social entrepreneurs and development experts, we will illustrate how renewable energy in India has taken off at the rural level. Not only will the series provide insight into their fascinating entrepreneurial journey, but also how they've been able to overcome the financing, consumer awareness, and distribution challenges associated with rural solar energy deployment at a large scale. In this episode, we will be speaking with Radhika Thakur, one of the earliest employees of Greenlight Planet, a leading global provider of solar home energy products to over 45 million rural consumers. And the company employs over 1,000 dedicated individuals. Ms. Thakur helped expand the company's presence from India to Africa, Southeast Asia, and Latin America within one year of operations, to include hundreds of channel partners in more than 50 countries around the world today. Ms. Docker is also the president of the board of directors of GOGLA, which is the global association for the off-grid solar energy industry and represents over 200 organizations. Hope you enjoy our wide-ranging conversation. I recently came across a report from an IFC energy conference in 2009, which highlighted that underserved communities were spending $20 billion on substandard off-grid lighting solutions. And the report predicted 95% annual growth of off-grid lighting solutions for the decade 2010 to 2020. And this is globally. And I know Greenlight, which of course is global operations today, was founded in 2009 and just wanted to ask like how the idea to create this company came about at a time when the sector was just so nascent. Could you talk a little bit about like the early days of Greenlight and like how the idea to launch the company came about?
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for having me here. Um, So you're absolutely right. We, we launched our first sales in 2009. Um, But, but there's a, there's a chapter or two that precedes the official registration and, you know, incorporation of Greenlight Planet that, um, that, that really gets into the, the why, like how did, how did this idea come about and how did it end up turning into into a company that's that's now lasted um, well well over a decade. Um, and it starts actually in, in a college, uh, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, um, where Patrick Walsh, who's the CEO of Greenlight and, and one of the co-founders of the company as well, um, was studying um, physics actually. And he had uh, at some point um, started a, an internship with Engineers Without Borders. Um, And the project that he was working on uh, throughout the academic year was to work with a group of students to to, um, build a biodiesel generator uh, for for a village in Orissa, in Eastern India, um, to power a rice husking machine. This is an off-grid village um, that um, harvests a lot of rice and and traditionally has done so by hand. And the idea was to take an old generator, a traditional generator, make it a little bit more um, eco or sort of environmentally uh, friendly by using, um, um, you know, non-edible seeds uh, that could be used for fuel and help the community just get faster, right? They just, we can husk rice faster. We can bring more to market, less effort, more money, more income, you know, better for for the community. Um, And so the project team, you know, Patrick was working with, they designed this over the summer. They went to the village to, to build it And they taught the community how to use it, how to maintain it, you know, in a simple way. Um, And then went on, you know, uh, Patrick went on to travel around India for a little while, as you do as a college student over the summer. And he came back um, on his way out and his way back to the U.S. um, and realized that the community was using the generator that they had built, but not to husk rice. (laughs) They had pretty much as soon as the students left, disconnected The generator from the rice husking machinery and reconnected it or sort of rejiggered it um the generator to power individual light bulbs in many of the homes in the community and so they you know looked at the solution and were like we have energy awesome what are we going to do we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get some light at home and 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 patrick you know saw that and realized gosh we we didn't even bother asking them what they wanted or what they would prioritize if we could help them access some some energy, right? Um, if we could bring sort of a taste of the grid here, um, we assumed that they would want it to accelerate income generation. And the community thought, we have a way to Christ right? We've been doing this. What we don't have at home is clean, reliable, affordable light. We, we use kerosene. Um, it's terrible for our lungs, uh, our children's trained to study. Um, and they saw an opportunity to just have bright, clean light without any of those, you know, the health um, and, uh, and safety hazards of, of the kerosene lamp or the ongoing expense, right? Because they're buying kerosene, you know, in sort of small two thirds of a Coke bottle, a tiny, you know, Coke bottle amount every week, w- which adds up. Um, and so when Patrick saw that, he he was like, gosh, I, you know, one, we purchased the wrong way. We, we imposed a solution uh, instead of Really understanding what a community would want if a team of engineers come do something, um, but two, this is not the most efficient way <laughs> to bring light to the community. Of course, you know you, you could create this sort of central power source and and wire it to an incandescent light bulb in each in each home, but um, it's inefficient. What happens if the generator breaks down? They may or may not have the expertise locally to fix it, um, and it's not really scalable. Like this is one village out of thousands um in india let alone you know hundreds of thousands in, in the world um and so he you know he went back to school and you know he was thinking before he made that trip he had purchased at an out you know an rei or, or store like that a solar-powered lamp that he thought might come in handy for his trip and it did you know he had this extra um bit of flight and he realized the lamp he had bought was not maybe the most advanced or the most energy efficient either um but clearly solutions exist, um, and it wasn't that expensive. And so he started to tinker around, right? So he's, he's back in school now, um, and he started to just play around in the lab and, and study um, LEDs and solar panel technology and realize that um, there's just a, a, a much easier way to scale um, an alternative to kerosene labs. And, and that was the initial project, you know, at that point, I, I don't think it was even really a business idea. It was just a, this seems like a really solvable problem. <laughs> it's, um, can't we just replace a kerosene lamp with a solar lamp? And and that's how it got going. So, you know, very long story on, on the beginnings there, but, um, Patrick, you know, played around, designed a solar lamp. that looked not, nothing like our current lamps do. And um, but he then went back in the next summer and took those prototypes that he built and started to, to just get a feel. This is something that, People would want. Um, would they purchase it? Would they use it? And the responses were consistently positive. Um, enough so that he realized there's an opportunity that there's, you know, there's um, at that point nearly two billion people that were still using kerosene lamps, either entirely, kind of primarily, or even sporadically when they couldn't rely on the grid. And and you realize there's just no need with with solar technology, with battery technology, with LED technology. That didn't need to be the an answer today. Um, and so that that's what got Greenlight going. And um, Patrick then brought in two of his classmates um, from the University of Illinois into the picture, and they decided, yeah, let's let's do this. There's a real this is opportunity. Um, and so then you know, like many early stage ideas, began the process of. Um, doing one thing during the day kind of trying to raise money on the side at night, building a business plan uh, or finding a product, et cetera. But um, by the end of 2008, the the trio of co-founders had had raised in in seed funding and had figured out how to um, launch production and had figured out an initial distribution model to play with um, and, and got the business going. Um, And so by, you know, um, May, April, May of 2009 had the first shipment of, uh, of the original Sun King product um, destined for India to, to begin selling. Um, and so, yeah, I fast forwarded quite a bit there and got out the details. But at the time, you know, there, there just wasn't much. There were a couple of companies who'd had very similar origin stories and similar solutions mm-hmm. um, that had gotten started maybe a year, a year and a half before us. But there, there just really weren't many. Companies that were thinking about individually affordable um, solutions for households to purchase to replace this, you know, ubiquitous kerosene lamp that just had not innovated over, you know, well over a century at that point.
0: Thank you so much for expanding on that. And yeah, I know Greenlight mm-hmm. Planet and the Sun King um, product portfolio was like the first, one of the very first partner companies of the IFC's Lighting Asia India Initiative. And I was looking at a statistic online and you're mentioning how um, these products like help save on kerosene costs. And just to put a number on that, I read that over time, the Greenlight Sun King product portfolio saved over $3.4 billion on fossil fuel-based energy costs, which is like yeah. a super significant um, number. And I'm just trying to understand like, In those early days, like 2009, I think that's when you joined the company as well, in the middle of 2009. Like, what were some of the key challenges that you and the team experienced in terms of trying to sell and like scale the product across India? Could you talk a little bit about like some of those scaling challenges
1: initially? Yes, yes, for sure. I'd say back then in 2009, awareness. Of our product category, the technology and the, the what we were doing and why was so was so limited. I think that was one of the, the biggest barriers that we faced, and that stretched from the end consumer, right, the household that we were that we were selling to, um, to you know companies, distributors that we were eager to partner with to get our products to to more rural um, households, all the way up to government levels and, and ministries. Of, you know, uh, energy and electrification uh, in in a variety of countries. This just wasn't an industry, right? Um, there, there wasn't. There was a recognition that um, the entire world does not have access to the electric grid. That that was known, but um, but there wasn't yet um, a sense of um, alternatives to that. That you know, I think at the time it was still assumed that the way to give everyone energy access is to expand the grid. Um, I'd liken it to maybe a couple decades before that, not even a full two decades, a decade and a half before that, when, um, you know, the, the world, not everyone had a mobile phone, um, and the way to be connected by voice was to have a landline in, installed in your, you know, in your household. And, and if you go back even a few decades, um, not every physical house had a had a landline, right. And you'd go to, um, People go to go to their neighbors uh, who was like the designated, you know, call person or somebody would would get a phone call for for someone outside of their household. And, you know, uh, someone in the family would run down and and grab the neighbors and say, you know, your uncle's called you or something. Um, And then, of course, the world leapfrogged. And now the prevalence of of connectivity, mobile phones, it's, it's not even one per household, but it's multiple. Household and in you know so much of the world um, without a landline at all, right? And so I think that shift of we don't have to physically connect everyone to the grid um, to w- we can provide solutions that actually don't even come from the electric grid. Um, that that wasn't recognized. I think um, that at sort of the larger scale at, at the government um, at the government level, um, let alone at the consumer level. Um, you know we were. We were speaking to extremely rural households um, in India, and uh, and sort of by the end of 2009, um, also starting to build out distribution in in sub-Saharan Africa as well. And and the profile was very similar: typically a rural household who was not really familiar with solar technology, and if they had heard of it, um, the association was kind of large scale commercial. And in some countries, the association was, "This doesn't work." It's a way that someone comes and cons you of, of, of your money. Um, and so we had to do a tremendous amount of educating customers, um, or educating for customers, You know, explaining what solar technology is, how, how it works, um, and how it could replace um, fuel-based sources of lighting, which at the time was the predominant way. People were lighting their homes, um, explain the financial, uh, calculations, you know, you have this recurring cost of kerosene. And when you pay for a solar lamp, you don't have any recurring costs until a few years from now when you might need to change out the battery. Um, so a tremendous amount of consumer education. And and, and for that reason, we um, we couldn't just produce our products and put them on like store shelves because no one would ever come over and purchase it. You know, you, you don't go into a store, you go into a store looking for something that you know you want. Um, you don't go in kind of, learning completely new technology and, and kind of putting together for yourself the value it may bring you so we actually had to build a direct distribution model specifically so that we could bring our products to communities through people that spoke their language that were from the area could explain what the product was how it works how it might bring them value um etc and so yeah i would say creating awareness at so many levels was just one of the biggest challenges i mean i I um I, I remember in those early years when I was trying to find distributors um in India and also in Sub-Saharan Africa, I would meet sometimes with companies, um, you know, I, I would go and try to find like um, FMCG, fast movement consumer goods or consumer durables companies, because I was thinking, you know, they they get these small packets of cereal or sugar or flour or oil and tea. Um, all the way down to these small kiosks in rural areas, how perfect? Couldn't, I, couldn't we just leverage their distribution system, uh, their customers are our customers? And I would go and speak with them and they would look at me like, I don't understand why, why you want to talk to me. I don't do electronics. I don't do light. Also, I'm not an NGO. And so there was this assumption back then, um, you know, for, with a lot of organizations or people that we're speaking with that you're talking about customers that don't have money. Um, you must be an NGO. Um, you know, th- how could how could anyone ever afford this? And and we knew that that wasn't true, right? We we had rural customers, um, you know, with a couple of dollars a day as as their household income, who were making that choice and saying, "I value this" and making investments in our products. But there was that was a big mindset mind, um, mindset shift that we had to kind of enable as well. Um, just helping people understand that there that there are consumers. Yes, they're lower income. Than urban households, but they they have needs that they prioritize, and they're willing to open up their wallets and and invest in solutions that get better them their their livelihood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say those are two really really big um, challenges in those early years. Um, the challenges have shifted, of course, uh, over over the years since then. But but that when I think back then, I think those are two of the the largest.
0: When you reflect back, are there like any moments that you remember where? like this event happened and then green light kind of like inflected in its journey, if that makes sense. Mm. Meaning like, yeah. are there any key moments like early on that you can point to, which the team just looks back on and is like, that's the moment that enabled us to kind of get to the next level.
1: Yeah, there's probably been a few. And and I think that's probably, Um, there's probably a series of things that, that added up. Um, And, you know, and and I was just talking about this uh, limited awareness um, challenge. I think um, part of what has addressed that is, you know, just the growth of our industry. Um, When, you know, back then, 2009, 10, there was like, there were like five companies um, like us trying to create this awareness across all of sub-Saharan Africa, all, all of Asia, all of the areas that have an off-grid population. And as each of us grew, um, and, and particularly in markets where we were, you know, kind of operating, um, together, sort of side by side, um, awareness started to, to build. Right. And so as more, more companies were out there, customers, companies, government started to understand what we're doing a little bit more. and, And that, that helped, um, and it helped create momentum for sure. Um, and and I think, um, you know, you, you referenced Lighting Asia, um, the predecessor to Lighting Asia, uh, which, which is part of Lighting Global, was Lighting Africa. That, that was the beginning of this IFC, World, World Bank funded program. Um, a big part of what they were doing was helping to create awareness, um, particularly awareness around how the distributed off-grid um, industry could be a real commercial, like a, a commercially viable marketplace. And so there was, there was a lot of work that they did to help kind of expose companies like ours that were making solutions to local distributors, you know, big distribution companies, microfinance institutions, ag companies, et cetera. Also a lot of conversations with governments to show the value proposition to help create, um, uh, welcoming, you know, sort of tax climates, um, Reducing or eliminating import duties, enable um, in, in in order to be able to change the energy access picture locally. Um, and so, I think um, you know certainly like the growth of our industry and the growth of of companies and competitors and distributors helped. But but I think that there were um, really important. There's really important work that came from ancillary organizations that just saw the potential of what could happen and and really helped, um, you know, partner with, with us, with the commercial side to, to, to really unlock that potential. So that, um, so that's not a specific inflection point, but um, you know, one thing that's been really incredible is Lighting Africa got this going. I think the first one was in 2008 and then the first kind of major one was in 2010 and basically every two years holding a, a, a global off-grid industry um, conference, um, bringing everyone together. And the first one that we participated in was in 2010 in in Nairobi. And um, 10 years later, so beginning of 2020, just before the pandemic really shut everything down, um, that the the 2020 conference also took place in Nairobi. And um, that was such a beautiful reflection point um, because we, we were there in 2010, it was actually held at the same venue. It's just that we took up a lot more of the venue in, in 2020, and there were probably a couple hundred people there in 2010, and there was over a thousand people there in 2020 wow. um, from a much yeah larger set of countries, um, uh, ministers from all different um, you know energy uh, sort of arms of of governments, policymakers, funders, distributors. I, I mean, it was incredible and. Um, you know, I think about. I'm, I'm just trying to think of like where their milestones or inflection points. I think about those every two year gatherings often as as really interesting um, milestones for us to measure, and and in some cases, you know, inflection points because they really sort of show the industry like what's going on and who's there and and who and who's a leader. And so that's that's one thing that's um, you know, I think been really remarkable to watch over the years. Um, I think in terms of actual kind of like our, our business fundamentally shifted um because of a certain a certain thing um i think one's a softer uh inflection point which is um as i was mentioning before i think just when there's kind of this like tipping point when there's a certain number of companies operating in a certain country um, all selling quality solar products particularly where the government um in in that market is is supportive of the off-grid industry and is kind of creating or helping to create a conducive enabling environment. Um, We we see sort of a few years of like hard work to build awareness and then you kind of, you start to feel a little bit of hockey, you see a bit of hockey stick lift up. And so I can't point to like a specific day where, where that stood out, but I think we've seen this in all of the the sort of the leading markets um, in, in the world right now for off-grid solar, there, there's this kind of magic thing that magical thing that happens when there's a certain, um, you know, abundance or, or presence of prevalence of, of companies selling um, high quality, um, you know, solar powered energy systems. I think the other that comes to my mind is um, when we moved into the pay as you go space. Um, so um, mm-hmm. maybe just a, a short recap on a uh, sort of summary of what, what pays you go is, but basically we embed technology into our products that allows our customers to pay for the, the solution um, through a series of, uh, of installments, um, rather than paying say a hundred dollars up front for, a a 6 foot dollar home system. And they may pay over, you know, eight or 10 months, um, in some cases four or six months or something like that. And they make, you know, small incremental payments could be as little as like 25 or 30 cents a day, depending on the sizes of the system. Um, And at some point they've completed, you know, a series of payments and it, that they have fully paid off their their product. Um, The technology, the way the technology works is that if a payment is not made, the system does not work. So it's a nice way to sort of ensure you know, payment happens on um, uh, sort of a little bit of a, a lockable asset there. Um, and and it makes it possible to provide some sort of financing to customers that generally don't have credit histories or or even bank accounts um, or any sort of, you know, credit worthiness that, that we could look at. Um, and for the customer, it makes super affordable um, a product that, you know, if, if we had required them only to pay up front would just be, really challenging for most um, because we're talking about an investment in something that represents you know, multiple months worth of, of income um, for, for the household. Um, and so I think we weren't the first uh, to to operate in the pay-as-you-go world. We had, um, by the time we stepped in, into pay-as-you-go solutions, we've already had about nine years of selling products for cash, which is the harder, the harder thing, or finding financing partners, you know, like like microfinance uh, like institutions. Um, but I think when we launched into the pay-as-you-go space, um, initially in Kenya and Uganda, and then Tanzania and Nigeria, Myanmar, um, and now India and, and Zambia as well, um, it really just unlocked um, energy access, I think, or it really accelerated energy access. Um, And so that's probably the biggest inflection point that we've experienced individually. And I think our industry has experienced overall because we completely remove that cost upfront, payment upfront barrier for for our customers.
0: Super interesting. Yeah, my next question actually was gonna be about the pay-as-you-go model and like how the growth of telecom presence in off-grid markets has impacted Greenlight's product offerings. And I'm just curious... So like across these markets that you just mentioned, Kenya, Mm -hmm. India, and several other countries across like the African subcontinent, um, do you find that like Mm -hmm. the presence of telecom towers is pretty like ubiquitous, as in Mm -hmm. like most rural um, residents have access to mobile phones and could you just talk maybe a little bit about um, like how that technology, like the presence of that that technology in these markets?
1: Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the growth of the telecom sector definitely represents huge um, opportunity for continuous, accelerated energy energy access um, and and distribution of energy. Um, I think the reason it's so Valuable for us is that Pago, um, in our experience, has worked best, or say, most seamlessly when customers can pay through mobile money. Um, it's really. It's, it's really much simpler from a, a distribution perspective. We don't physically have to meet our customers or set up a payment you know, uh, location. It's safer. There's no physical handing over of cash, um, either from the customer to our you know our sales points and then kind of coming back up centrally. And so in places like Kenya, where mobile money, Tanzania, also Uganda, where mobile money is um, super prevalent, uh, it just makes it that much easier to offer a pay-as-you-go product, right? Because um, not only can we get the product out to the customer and we have this um, this technology that enables them to pay in installments, but they can actually make payments without having to leave their home or meet one of our salespeople. So so that um, that's definitely an enabler. I don't think it's a prerequisite though. So we also operate in markets where mobile money is not very prevalent. Um, we hope that it it will grow in, in time, but um, we have figured out um, more manual ways that, you know, more traditional sort of cash um, collections to, to support the system. It's more complex. Certainly there's more um, unknowns or variables that you have to account for um, security, you know, handing over of cash, loss, all of that, um, but it's not impossible. And, um, and so, yeah, I think um, as, as a telecom industry, you know, I think one continues to expand their footprint to more and more rural areas, which we've seen happened tremendously in the last decade. Um, and, and to your question about towers, um, there's so many more today than, than there were a decade ago. Um, there's still a lot of places, um, particularly where population density is low, where connectivity is not great. Um, and, and that really depends country to country, but even within a certain country, region to region. Um, but I think you know if, if we look at what's happened in the last decade, and then fast forward to the in the next decade, I can only imagine that's going to keep you know improving and, and getting more um, prevalent, right? Connectivity, um, competition, um, the strength of connectivity, uh, both from an airtime or sort of a, a um, uh, kind of the clarity of signal as well as data and and how affordable data bundles have become. Um, you know, I think. There's just there's so much more that's available um, and not concentrated to urban or peri-urban areas. So, um, so, so that that is important. And and I think, um, but I, I'd almost say more importantly, the growth of mobile money um, in in various markets around the world will help, you know, accelerate this pay go channel um, as well around the world. It for for as successful as the pay-as-you-go solar industry has been, it's heavily concentrated. Um, to, to a few parts of the world, um, East Africa, generally, uh, Rwanda, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania tend to be the strongest, starting to grow a lot in Nigeria. Um, and there, you know, and, and there's a few other markets that are starting to build, but the, when you look at the, the like global, um, sales figures for, for pay as you go solar. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, what percentage, but, uh, an overwhelming majority is, is really concentrated to East Africa. And, and I think that is so closely related to where mobile money is prevalent. Um, also, where the industry has has grown. So, yes, yeah, so I think as as mobile money becomes even more prevalent in different parts of the world, and telecom operators continue to invest and um, and provide great services in, in rural areas, um, it's absolutely going to um, accelerate. You know what we can do um, as well in terms of providing energy, um, and and I think there's a really nice symbiotic relationship here because when our products get out to rural customers who don't have energy at home and and through our products now have a way to charge their mobile phones, charge a tablet, access a television, um, you know, power and and watch a television. Um, They also have, you know, devices to consume data um, and to log online and do, you know, e-learning. Think about all of the the virtual schooling or or the fact just that schools were closed for a lot of last year um, and a lot of Students were accessing educational content through radios um, and through televisions uh, provided by, you know, local networks, um, and, w- and we certainly saw our customers purchasing our solar-powered radios and televisions at a different rate than we'd ha- than we'd seen previously. Um, and so there's this really nice, yeah, I think relationship, right? That with the prevalence of, of internet and data and information, um, and and ability to power super efficient, you know, low energy devices. Um, uh, you know, this this kind of marriage between the two um, can 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 do even more for 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 particularly for rural consumers, many of whom have been kind of overlooked or underserved by um, by a lot of the advancements that tend to happen in urban in peri urban areas.
0: Thank you so much for expanding on that. And I know we don't have much time left. And I've been excited to ask you this question. I usually ask some form of it um, across all of my interviews. Um, but I'd like to hear like, your thoughts on what advice you would provide to like, maybe a younger entrepreneur who is thinking about serving like, the off-grid market Across emerging economies, just reflecting through the lens of your own experience, um, Is there any specific advice that you would like give to a younger entrepreneur um, who's thinking about entering the space?
1: Yeah. First of all, I'd say please enter the space <laughs> for as much as the industry has has solved or, or started to make progress in there. You know, we still have more than a billion people that that need energy. Um and the you know, kind of global goals for universal energy access um, by 2030 are it's it's pretty aggressive. So we all have to work together and um and 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 get really innovative to to get there. Um so yeah, so so. That's one I invite entrepreneurs in and I think um, but then I think on a practical level um, I think really pay attention to to what your customers um, and whatever the product is, whatever your market segment is, whatever your consumers are really pay attention to what they want and what they need and ask questions and observe and listen, um, and, and adapt your business, your product, your business, your processes to just suit the customer not the other way around. Um, right. So, um, it's, it's important to do a lot of thinking in an office or in a lab, um, and to create and then, and then to get things out. But, um, it's, it's really important to, to learn from how, you know, customers are reacting to the things that we, that we offer um, to understand what works and what doesn't um, and then and iterate based on that. And, uh, and, and that's super important from the beginning of the design stages, right? So um, concepts have to be, I think, created based on an understanding of, of what's going on um, in, in reality um, and then pressure tested not just in a lab setting, but in real life. Um, and that I think has been so important um, for us at Greenland. It's one thing that we, um, over, over the years, have been really consistent in, which is we prioritize going to the source. Um, mm-hmm. So when you know when we hear a, a complaint, um, something doesn't feel right, doesn't appear to be working, uh, we're not seeing the trends we'd anticipated, um, sitting around a boardroom and hypothesizing. Sometimes it's appropriate, but usually going down on the ground and asking questions and observing firsthand and getting a sense of why is this not, you know, reconciling with what what we had envisioned. Um, so that's super important. And that's how you figure out um, what is it that, that you know, customers really need and want and and what are they willing and, and, you know, how can they afford or how can they, how do they interact with the solutions that we put out there? Um, I think that has driven our product innovation from the, the very earliest uh, days, it was, you know, customers saying to us, "I need light is wonderful, but I really need a way to charge my mobile phone." That pushed us to figure out um, how to add a mobile phone charger USB, you know, port um, to our portable lamps. Um, it was customers saying, "I love these products, but I don't have the money. Um, help me figure out how to pay for them." That pushed us to um, build, our, you know, what became really large and partnerships with MFIs. Um, even when we started those partnerships, it was our observations of and, and working hand in hand with like the loan officers who were going out and meeting you know, groups of borrowers to understand how do you even make that sort of distribution partnership work. It you know it, it took a long time before it clicked, um, and and it took a lot of you know, time on the ground observing how how things happen, and then sort of building and tweaking the, the the distribution, the marketing, the support model, the after sales, you know, model around it um, before that that would click. And so yeah, I, I think go to the source. Uh, go to the source as much and as often as you can um, ask questions and, and really pay attention to to what's coming out to you. I think, I think that's really important in any kind of business really. Um, but certainly when it comes to energy access and, and just really, you know, hard to, hard to travel to places. Um, infrastructure just is, is lacking. Um, and so it's really important to, yeah, to, to get, to see what's around you and and get creative, um, based on that.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time and sharing all of these incredible insights and make sure to go to the source and, um, I'm sad I didn't get to ask you about the silent energy transition, but next time. <laughs> and uh, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Radhika.
1: Of course, thanks, Guy.
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode, and do check out the show notes for more information on my guest. See you next time.